Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is artist, attorney, and global citizen, Sean Elahi. In today's show, Elahi talks about a life lived in numerous countries, developing a sense of home out of diverse cultures across the world. He also shares his exploration through various creative media, especially photography, of his own personal grief but also to express the wonder in our shared, colourful experiences across the planet. Everybody has a story and everybody's interesting. I find people to be the most fascinating animals, humans, I don't know what you want to label them, amazing. Sean Elahi is the Vice President of Finance and Operations at the Kiwit Luminarium in Omaha. He studied economics at Columbia University in New York and attended Creighton University in Omaha to study law. Aside from his professional endeavors, Elihi is an artist using photographic and musical expression to capture life as a world traveler and global citizen, exploring our everyday yet profound shared experiences across the planet. Sean Elahi, welcome to Lives. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to start at the beginning just, just because I'm intrigued by this idea of being a global citizen, but it feels like I want to anchor that in something. And that feels like your childhood should be the place to start. So where were you born? Where were you raised? And what was your childhood like? I was born in Sheboygan, which is a small or a suburbia off in Milwaukee. So I was there for about a year So I would, and moved to Saudi Arabia. So I would probably consider myself a quasi first immigrant, maybe third culture kid. And so when we moved, my my dad worked uh, for a company called Aramco. It's an American compound in Dahran. And we were there in the 80s and 90s. It was a wild time. So the American compound was... Education, it was American system, American uh, educational system to uh, everybody was more on the less same socioeconomic level. And we actually had one channel, it was American channels, we had movies on Saturday and Sunday. It was actually pretty idealistic in terms of there was access to um, sports, played a lot of tennis, played a lot of soccer. Actually, it's how I got into swimming. My mother was unable to swim, so she encouraged her children to go swimming. So then I got really into it and ended up actually qualifying for the Junior Olympics in the U.S. And we actually had an Olympian come coach us as well for the players or swimmers that could compete. So Rowdy Gaines, I don't know if people are familiar, but he's an Olympic gold medalist in the 1984 Olympics. He came, so we were spoiled a little bit with the access. Then outside the compound, there was you had to abide more with the, the Saudi traditions. So people spoke Arabic. You had to travel with a male companion. So living in those those worlds was actually quite natural. And as a kid, you can kind of adapt and change and see this is how the world works. And so then I was there until the first Gulf War. And so Operation Desert Storm in the 90s. And um, we had gas masks. It was actually pretty gnarly as a kid because, you know, we had duck and cover drills and you had to kind of 
when the alarms went off or to practice alarms, you had to hold hands and make a head count and walk around. And I guess my parents weren't really into it that much. And so there was actually scud missiles for firing above us. There would be sirens, you see jets. And so that also became a, a normal part of life. And so then my dad stayed back for a couple of years due to his contract. But then we moved to Pakistan where my parents are actually from India, but they migrated during the partition and to Pakistan. And so then we grew up in Islamabad, which is the capital, very beautiful near the hills up north. So lived there until... Um, Moved, I'll probably say we moved there in fifth grade. Well, when I was in fifth grade, fourth, fifth grade, and then stayed there and graduated from high school. So that was an interesting time too, considering growing up from the States to Saudi Arabia, living in an American compound, to going to a country that where your parents are from, and then where you're from, uh, or where your ethnicity, your ancestors are from. So it was a great experience. Um, and then ended up going to college in New York City at um, Columbia University. To me, it feels quite giddy hearing about this journey from um, everyone's of Milwaukee out to Saudi Arabia, but essentially in an American compound, but at the same time, immersing yourself to some degree in the, in the, in the surrounding landscape, both culturally and, and physically. And then you've you know, mentioned that traumas of India and Pakistan and the partition and, and, and living in Islamabad or in that area. And there's a lot happening to a young, to a child and then to a young man. And, and to me, it feels a bit dislocating, but you make it sound as if it felt normal. As you look back on that, do you identify that there was a sense of dislocation or trying to work out what it is to be someone growing up? in those different cultural landscapes? Was it all just normal? Is it just a part of how you saw the world? I think as a child, you become very resilient. But looking back, no, it wasn't normal. I know I knew that when I was leaving Saudi Arabia, you drop a network, kids um, going to the same school, friends. And so when, when I left and moved to Pakistan, New country, new language, new systems, a British system, going from an American system to a British system, driving on the opposite side of the street. It was disorienting. You know, there were days to, like, I haven't really talked about this, but it's like this move is not permanent yet. Like, you know, I might move back to Saudi Arabia or to friends. But I think that as you see things, you see cultures and you see people interacting seeing things in a different light, I started to appreciate a lot of that. And I kind of started realizing that if you open yourself to all these different experiences, you can have a more enriched life. And I think that as a kid, doing that at such a young age, maybe I get a head start. But then it comes to the definition of what is home to me now. And I think that that's always something I like discussing or I like having that talking to people at the conversations of what home is now because of constant movement. And I know people in, in Nebraska where I live, have lived here their whole lives, which is mind blowing, but amazing. Like the roots that they've established. And so when they hear stories of I've lived in different places, it just becomes that the concept of home of becomes more of an abstract where I think there's two things for me that what home means. The first one is basically the relationships. So wherever I am in the world, doesn't matter 
if it's, I have a friend in Singapore. So when, when I visited him, I only knew him, but we have such a rapport that I can be seen, I can be heard, I can be understood by this one person. And because of this person, the whole city is opened up to me. I think that's the first of the relationships that you build, those, those roots. And the second one is actually more of the physical space of a city, the rhythm of it, the smell of it. I went to Mexico City last year and it was my first time in the city. And when, he, when I landed, I felt the electricity and we call it Ronic in, in Urdu. And, and that means more of like the, the, the ordered chaos, the electricity. And then you used to, and I hit a, a memory growing up in a place I used to live. It felt the same way too, where I felt that energy. And I felt that even the smells of the city was like, oh, this is, this is home to me as well. And like the people, the culture, the, the food, the, the colors. And so those are things now more as the world gets smaller and the world's your oyster, I feel for me at least, it's home is basically relationships and the sort of rhythms of the physical spaces. When you were younger, do you remember when you first had that sense? And maybe you couldn't put words to it at that time, because now you're thinking more intelligently about what home means. But as you look back, was it in Pakistan, for example, where you thought, this feels more like home because of the relationships maybe you had with family, different people there, the relationship you had with the physical city, the vibrancy that you're describing, or maybe not, maybe it was somewhere else. I, but I'm, I'm curious, when, when did you first sort of have that sensibility of what you might think of as home? Yeah, I think that as I grew up, and as a kid, you never think about moving. Usually, you know, when you have your parents and one day it's like, hey, you know what, we're going to move. So I think that when you grow up as a kid, I guess my first one in living in Saudi Arabia, it was customary to, you know, you go up to ninth grade, then you go to boarding school, then you go to States or you go to college. So that was always my recollection of like what a hometown is. But then when things don't go according to plan, you got to pivot and you move you start to realize then what is permanent and what's not permanent. And I think as a child, you kind of realize that it's less about uh, having something physical all the time to make you feel at home, but it's more of like a, a mindset. So I was telling you about, you know, when I first moved to Pakistan, I was like, well, I mean, I, I, I'm here physically, but mentally I still want to be somewhere else. And like, you know, and then you miss out on opportunities and making new friends, but then you kind of realize this is, you got to make the most out of what you have in, in the moment. And so I think that with that thought was then I knew I moved once, I moved, we moved, well, I didn't remember moving from Wisconsin because of the baby, but to Saudi Arabia, to Pakistan, and then maybe going to college in the States. So it was, I became open to the idea of things that are more in transience. I don't know much about your family. So you mentioned your mom and dad. I don't know about your siblings, if any. I don't know about where you've lived in different places, whether extended family members that were a part of your life experience at, at those different times. I am the youngest of, of four. So I have two sisters. I also had a brother, but he passed away when I was in fourth grade. He was in 10th grade. And then 
so that was in Saudi Arabia. And so then when we moved to, to Pakistan, we had extended family, like my dad was from Karachi and my mother was from Faisalabad. And so they come from big families and cousins all over country. So it was nice to have that support system. So when I, we moved to Pakistan, I had cousins to play cricket with and spend time with and get to know my uncles and, and aunts. So it was, it was actually a great experience to kind of get reconnected to, to family and to, because I think my dad was actually the first in his side of the family, as well as my mother, to move abroad. So my dad was actually in London and then he came back and decided to move to the States when the U.S. opened up the, the visa applications to South Asians because of uh, they look for professionals and he's actually a physician. So he ended up uh, moving to Milwaukee. Didn't know anything about the States, but he had a friend there and his friend said, come, come there. So that's kind of the story of the journey. But then there's a journey of coming back then from the States to Saudi Arabia, then eventually back to Pakistan. So he, they did a full circle. How do you think he was perceived differently? by his family, given that at that point, he was the person who had moved away from this extended family you've been describing, moved into Europe, moved to America, and then had in some ways worked his way back to the, as it were, the the bosom of uh, the extended family. Whereas your experience was somewhat the opposite, having born in Wisconsin, but then moved eastwards into finding this extended family more personally and more physically present. I just wonder how his experience was, as it were, moving back compared to yours moving towards. We don't really talk as much. I haven't talked to my dad a lot about that, but I think it was, but from the stories that he has told to the family, it was hard because he was the eldest in his family and then we became... The more, the more serious one, I, was, I would say, he was actually raised by his grandfather. And the rest of the, his siblings were actually raised by the, his actual father. So it was interesting uh, dynamics. He was, this is when they were actually in India, pre-partition. And he decided to go to med school. And then he was the smart one. I, I would probably, I do this in quotation, but after school, he went to London for his residency. So he was away. And I think that that also distance himself from his nuclear family, but he was more serious. So then his siblings looked at him for more of the, I would say, paternal aspect of a relationship, like support financially. And actually he was considered the anchor baby on my side of the family because everybody on my dad's side have ended up either in the UK, Australia, or the U.S., and from his side, he's the only one, he was the first one in the States, and, but he's the only one who's moved back to Pakistan. So everybody else on my dad's side is actually abroad, which is wild. But I'm sure like based on like his responsibilities, it was definitely different compared to how I grew up, having access to my parents, even though I was away for a couple of years from my dad. But yeah, it was a different life for him than it was for me. What was it that pulled you to New York City? I don't know if you moved there to study economics or if you moved to New York City, because why wouldn't anybody? Everything was an accident, honestly. I'm the first one in my family to go to college here in the States. And 
My parents' dream was for me to go to med school in Pakistan, which, fun fact, I was in med school and I dropped out. My grades were good enough to, to get in, but I was just, it wasn't the right time for me. And so they pretty much told me, if you want to go to the States, this is all you. And so kind of learning the, the navigation, talking to friends. I, and my sister just moved to Nebraska. So came here, here to the States and then it's like, hey, there's schools you can apply to. Ended up getting accepted in, at Columbia University. And so and I, I applied to a couple other universities, but New York City always fascinated me just based on the New York Knicks. Hearing friends are from New York City. But um, I, when I was there, the first two years, the city was also in education and as well as the university. And I just honestly come in here with two suitcases. I wanted it all. I wanted to experience life. I wanted to be excited to live in a vibrant town, to be inspired by teachers, professors, Nobel Peace Prize winners. And so that was kind of the re reasoning of me. Once I did more research in some of these universities, like this is, I think, where I want to go. And so it wasn't easy. I think the first year, two years, it was funny. It was a lot of culture shock, even though growing up in American compound in Saudi Arabia and watching VCRs and DVD shows of America, you, in your head, you have a picture of what America is supposed to be. And then when you get there, it's not the reality. It's like, oh, you got to got to hustle. You got to work. It's not money growing off of trees. And you're like, have I been sold? Like, like these TV shows, are they accurate or, or, or not? So it was a culture shock for the first couple of years. But then once you get in that rhythm, I was telling you about the city, like New York became home, um, love, fell in love with like the people, the, the vibrancy, the art. And I started, this is the time where I started to dabble more into the art world, going to like museums, meeting people, um, being fascinated with how people live. And I think going to a bigger city too, you get access to people from around the world. And it was just, I was spoiled. You know, you hear people from different countries and different facets of the sector from like politics to private sectors to nonprofit sectors. So I, I lucked out. I picked the right city and the right university. So New York City is a global city. And so I would imagine that to enjoy these rich experiences that make up a, a, an interesting, fulfilling life. What a great place to go for you at that time. But it is a multicultural place, and you, up until that point, were a multicultural person. And yet you still talk about culture shock. So what were aspects of coming to terms with the different perspectives of culture you found around you and then how that translated to the move to Nebraska? Great question. I think that what one of the main things I learned growing up in different countries, especially the last country being Pakistan, I would meet Pakistanis in New York City that lived in the States their whole lives. And I couldn't connect with them at a certain level because I think that sometimes as immigrants or children of immigrants, the parents kind of still traditions and customs that they want to. So I was sometimes meet these people that spoke better Punjabi than I did or better Urdu or cooked better than I did or danced better than I did. And so 
I started connecting with a lot of more wide variety of folks that lived outside of my bubble, but had similar like with expats to people, you know, I had some friends from like Israel that I connected with from India, from like South Africa. And I started realizing why, why is this? And you start realizing people's experiences, people living in different parts of the world, they see things differently and you connect on a different level. And so I think that for me, I had to navigate a lot more of like this internal conflict of why do I resonate towards certain individuals to places, to personalities that I think was like more of like a learning block of everybody has a story and everybody's interesting. I find people to be the most fascinating animals, humans. I don't know what you want to label them. Amazing. And so coming to Nebraska, I won't lie to you. I couldn't sleep for the first month because it was too quiet. I'm used to people fighting, people yelling four o'clock in the morning. But this place, like you meet other interesting folks where uh, they have a different type of culture. You know, people like to farm, to like to hunt, to fish. Something, you know, is totally out of my realm that I would ever do. But, you know, there are, there are things if you open yourself to do new experiences that actually make you grow. So it's more of in, inviting the newness and uncomfortableness of, of learning things. And so, um, and I think that also another important aspect of like the culture piece too, like finding my way in the world is when I was in New York City, right when I got into college, 9-11 happened. And so um, I identify as a Muslim, but um, I consider myself more spiritual. So this is a time where I'd be going to the university and then sometimes the cops would stop me and stop and frisk me. I would go to, when I travel back and forth to the country to visit my parents, I get stopped by the INS for so three, four hours, five hours conversation. I'd be missing my connecting flight. So that also made me grow up in a sense of trying to understand the way our world works. And I think I'm seeing from the Operation Desert Storm, from war to the 9-11 event. And so, I, and actually I grew more, my heart actually expanded and it grew because I could see, because I've lived in so many different worlds and had to like navigate these, these, diff, these paths that I could understand come from a place of love and come from a place of, getting more of my message out, more of my stories out to say, we're actually the same, the one and all. And so that's kind of been my journey of, in the States of the culture piece and navigating that world. So your bio references you as a global citizen. Is that what you're getting at? What, what does global citizen mean to you? You know, since the pandemic has happened too, and people can work wherever they want, the hybrid systems that we do have, you kind of see the world as your oyster. And I think like I've always been like that. And I did, I did mention traumatic events in my, in my life history. And I kind of knew that there was a delicateness to life, a transience to life to, you just don't know what's going to happen. And I think that growing up, you feel, or for when I was growing up, you know, like my childhood was lost. Just kind of growing up and trying to understand like, oh, you know, the world doesn't work in a perfect order. Like, you know, you don't, you know, like uh, be born, be a kid, get married, have kids, become a grandparent. And then, you know, the next generation comes along. But in terms of being a global citizen, I wanted to recapture, like you always think about what childhood means, but childhood, like I still feel 
I'm child. Like I'm, I'm a kid at heart because and it, based on that experience, it's like, you know what, let me reclaim that. And for me being a child, what I'm talking about is being in awe of the world, being the world's amazing. And so when I think myself as a global citizen, for me to, when you have as a kid, that aha moment, that, or, or that always happens to me when I travel, when I explore, when I'm living in different countries. And so for me, it's more about the relationships. It's more about my relationship to the people in the town and to, and to the city, the physical structures. And so I think that I've adopted a way that change is good, but also when you, when you open yourself to new experiences in different parts of the, of the, the country, that it actually it's a lot of personal growth. And it's just amazing to be alive at this time and juncture where you have, you, you have access to information and you have access to transportation, and you have access to, you know, whether it's Airbnb or you want to move, you, this is one of the best times to do it. I remember a particular British politician. This politician, when international cricket teams were playing, uh, England was playing, and I think they were playing Pakistan, and he asked a question about who would particular people be cheering for. So British Pakistan is as if it could be reduced to something binary like that. How do you feel in terms of examining your sense of your growing sense of self, your growing sense of identity, thinking about concepts like what is home when it feels as if the last few years we see across the world here in America and elsewhere, a growing pressure towards a binary perspective on who we are, how we identify, tribes we align with, and how we should respond accordingly. It seems to be a tension with the idea of being a global citizen. I'm just wondering how, how are you navigating that philosophically? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of internal dialogue. You bring up a good example with the sports of cricket, which um, just so you Boxing did beat England in the 92 World Cup or 91 World Cup. Uh, I'm sure you can remember the one year it was, but uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, you know, there's a great quote that a French soccer player, Karim Benzema, said that, you know, he's French, but Moroccan, I think, origin. He's like, when, when I win, I'm, I'm French. When I lose, I'm Arab. And I think that with that concept of trying to do the internal dialogue, like who I am, is that I encapsulate, and we're all complex human beings. And so I mentioned, you know, I grew up in a lot of a religious household. I'm, I'm a Muslim. I never really expanded on those topics until I started being questioned after 9-11. So it made me do my research of like, why was I raised this? Like, was this luck and chance because I was born with from uh, my parents in this location to happen and everything? Was this an accident? Was it not? So there's those dialogues that pop in. But then, you know, I was born in America, but I lived abroad. I lived in New York. I'm a New Yorker, but then I live in the Midwest. And so there's all these complex lines that, that are happening. But I think that when you start being more aware of who, who you are and you start questioning people, you have people coming. And I had a lot of people growing up living in the States asking me questions, and which is actually looking back good because then it made me verbalize things like, oh, this is like who I am. This is who I want to be, or this is where I, where I want to be. And so I think through all this dialogue and paths that I'm traveling, that I'm forced to ask these questions of like, 
Like, who am I? Like, what do I rep- want to represent? And I think that sometimes when you take such a micro level look of it, um, it can be scary. But also you got to remember, you got to take a macro and a holistic approach too, where we are very unique on an individual level, but we're also the same when you take a step back. And I think that has always helped ground me when, you know, you get into those areas of questioning what identity means to oneself. And I've been blessed to travel the whole or much of the world and see things and ways of living where one form of living might be so different from another way. But then at the end of the day, it's a beautiful thing. And I think that for me, I have this opportunity to connect all these cultures together, just being exposed to it, whether it's like living in different areas, being present in world events to even my art. And this kind of where a lot of my dialogue with myself comes out is through my artwork. How did art first emerge for you in your life? I would, ima- I would imagine that we all embrace art in some forms, creativity in some forms when we're young. We don't call it art. We don't think of it that way. But how did art and artistic expression begin to emerge for you in life? Yeah, so I think after my brother passed away, as a child, you don't have the languages to verbalize what's going on in your head. I think, and this is a time right before social media, so there's a lot of things I had to learn on my own. I mean, I had my parents could support me in the way in their own capacity, but you know, they were also grieving, families grieving. So we did have a piano, and so I started playing the piano a lot more. So the music was a way of, of, of a form of expressing myself. And at the time, I didn't know that I was benefiting from it, just being able to have that freedom. And I think that as we moved, the piano was moved to Pakistan and then played there. But then we had a family camera. And right when I moved to New York, I decided to bring my camera with me. And so the camera was like probably the easiest. It was easy for me to use that as a medium to express a lot of things that I was unable to articulate or verbalize. And I remember my first exhibition, I was walking down the street in New York City and I saw these photos and I was was trying to tell a story. And I thought to myself, I can do this and I can do this way better. I know that sounds a little cocky, but I think that as a young individual thinking like, hey, I can do this and I can do this better. Why not go for it? So then approached one of my professors like hey i want to do an exhibit i think i can do it and she kind of helped guide me and eventually i got written up in the in an art critic publication i forgot about that but kind of validated hey this is a story to tell but it was interesting because subconsciously i think there was a lot of things that these images were trying to convey that i wasn't really cognizant to it so sometimes there'll be individuals that would come and make some commentary on it and it's kind of scary because some of the things they would say would actually be accurate in terms of how, what I was thinking, but I was never um, aware of it. So it made me have to deal with some of the things, my trauma or my biases, my stereotypes to, to move forward. And so through that, that was the one main medium that like, I love doing, but then it veered towards music, made an album I kind of discussed with you earlier where we sold a couple of uh, songs to a Pakistani New York TV drama. Let's explain. Instead of just dropping that in, 
Tell us a little bit more about what this musical creation was. There's there's an album. It's it's still online. People can go find it and listen to the music you created. So, what was the genesis of this? And and then talk about what was the outcome of creating this album of music. Yeah, so it was two individuals that had no clue what they were doing. It's called ID Alahi, my last name, and D Lorenzo's the other individual. And so my talents at that time laid in the keyboards, melody arrangements, and drum tracks. And uh, my partner, he was good in the guitar and um, uh, and was a good vocalist. And so he was going through some traumatic events, and we kind of bonded over one day over over music on a summer day. So this is actually when I was in law school and for the summer, he said, why don't you just come to New York? And so I said, yes. And so I moved in with him for that summer, started making music together. And he actually eventually moved to Singapore, then to Malaysia. So we were always globetrotting to finish the album. And so it was kind of a, a more, the music is what bonded us, but the, and also made us force us to kind of, to see each other, to travel together and experience the world together. And so we ended up making an album after a couple of years. It took a while, but then we had our songs play on the, on the radio show in, in Pakistan as well. And so it was more of bonding with, with a brother that uh, is very dear to me right now. So uh, it's been great. Could you describe the kind of music that you created? I would say it's a, it's a cross culture of there's some songs of ours are in Urdu. Some of it is in English, but it's more of lounge. We're actually very eclectic. I would say so some of our songs are acoustic. Some of it was more hip hop to more like, I would say like lounge. We never really wanted to be defined by a certain sound, but more for a mood. I think that music for me has been such a, Inspiration, depending on, it doesn't matter what mood you're in, there's always some kind of melody that will resonate with you. And so we would just make music that was kind of soothe our soul. When I listened to it, one of the words that came to my head, because it is pretty eclectic and diverse, but I, I did think that it captured something of, of a global spirit. It doesn't surprise me at all that you created it over time and over different cultures and landscapes. But you made the one album. It was picked up to some degree. It was played on radio stations in different parts of the world. And yet music isn't what you pursued as your medium, your primary artistic expression, medium of choice, as it were. So why was it that you perhaps not stepped away from, but stepped back a little bit from music and, and lent more into photography? Yeah, I think with photography, it just came easier to me. I think that based on my life experiences, everybody has a unique way of looking at the world, perceptions, something that looks blue to you might look a different shade of blue to me. And I think that when I was trying to figure out my stories or how to convey some of my feelings, that I could do that more with images, more with the visual arts. And so, and sometimes it's easier to have people see something rather than have them listen for like three or four minutes to get to the end point. I think that's maybe the culture we live in now where people want immediate gratification, but it just came easier. And I think that through those 
development of my art, I've started incorporating like more collages, more pictures, and also painting on some of it too to convey different thoughts and ideas. And it's kind of interesting when you talk about the music and being global. That's where my visual art is going to as well as kind of being a glue or a binding or explaining or showing more of those different cultures and the world and the world that we live in, you know, and just kind of showing like life can be beautiful if you look at it that way. And I want my art to kind of convey not only the beauty, but the realness and the truth of the life that we do live in. And it's easy to kind of get sucked into our day-to-day events, but we also have to step back and kind of see who we are as people. And I'm, I'm, I appreciate your comments on my music and my art. How has your photographic art developed over time? And to what degree is it an exploration of the world around you as opposed to or perhaps including an exploration of the world that, that is within you. Yeah, so it's been, it's been a journey. I think that when I first started to show here in Nebraska, my first show was in Lincoln, Nebraska. This must have been 2017, 2016. And I went all out. It was a huge wall, framed a lot of it. My pictures, my artwork, did some foam board, had like 20 prints and like 10 framework. It was, it was, it was massive. It was awesome. So when we had the opening, the, the day of the opening came and talked to the owner of the building. They said, Hey, you should have these food, drinks and hors d'oeuvres and charcuterie board. We have a mailing list and we're going to invite everybody. And I was like, yes, this is my time. And so when the opening happened, only one person showed up to my opening. So, which was kind of amazing as well as like, okay, this is what life can throw at me. So I kind of sat down at the end of it when uh, I was closing uh, up the building, just kind of enjoyed everything. But I think that that made me process things of like, what, like, what do I want now? Like, am I here to try to sell something? Or am I here to tell my stories? And so I knew that my artwork was going to be up for a month or two. And hopefully it was more of conveying those stories out there. And I think that's what my decision I made. It's like, if I don't sell, that's not what my primary use. But over the years, I decided, like, no, I'm going to move forward with it. Take my pictures. And I've seen the evolution of my work develop, which has been very interesting and I guess a natural progression, but you're right. Some of it, I think all of it is internal as well as, and then when I say internal, a lot of the work, when people always ask me, what's your favorite piece that that you did? What's your favorite piece for this show? I don't have an answer because if you actually look at every single piece, my soul is in there. Everything you want to know about me is in there. And it's very scary because being very vulnerable, you don't know how people are going to critique you. You know, they may or may not like it. Certain things that people gravitate towards some of the stuff I created, it's like, oh, people will not have an ex- a good ex- or an, uh, experience with it. But they do. And some other photos or artwork I've done where I think, oh, this is going to sell. It doesn't sell or it doesn't uh, attract an audience. So I think that internally, 
where oh, for me at least, I think that I'm a conduit where uh, I'm here. I'm there's energy in, in the universe that's telling me to create something, see something, you see a perspective, you want to show it. Not a lot of people know about it, and so you want to change people's minds. And so then, once I create something, it's not mine anymore. It belongs to the rest of the world. And so I think that part too kind of freed me up to show myself in an artistic way that may or may not draw criticism. So and then I think through that, so that's an internal piece. And then there's also the external piece where I travel all over and I see all these connections with, you know, culture, places, and, and people. And I, I told you earlier, people are the most fascinating folks ever. Like, you know, I mean, I know we, I work at a museum and the museum is amazing. And you always think of what attracts people to go to a museum. It's actually the people, you know, obviously the people that work there, but the people like stories that you do show. And I've always wanted to love the concept of storytelling and telling stories. And we have such great stories like in this region as well as all over the world. And, you know, and I want to share that gift of showing more of the visuals encapsulate what the story I'm telling. A former guest on this show, Karen Campbell, uh, and she is the curator, uh, contemporary art curator at Joslyn Art Museum. She said that it takes a viewer to complete the art. You are having your art completed by it being seen and considered and encountered by other people. Is there some way in which you are trying to communicate with, connect with, at some level, with other people through your art? And, and, and what are you hoping is the consequence of that? There, there are a couple layers to it. But yes, to connect with the viewer, I think that for me, when you share a story, you want the story to be unique, but also you want the story to connect the viewer. Because if you have a story that's unique and is not connecting, then I think that you're, it's a different type of art form. I think for me, my art form is more of the storytelling piece of it. And so the viewer aspect piece is that I want people to feel something. I don't, And it doesn't necessarily have to mean they love it. They can hate it too. That's a feeling. And that's when I consider my job is done. We like to numb ourselves and not open ourselves to other experiences of seeing things. And then the other aspect of it is also the changing the narrative. And I think that part of this personal growth is that, you know, I went to Paris last year. I went to the Musée d'Orsay and there was an artist, uh, an Orientalist artist from the 18, he did a piece in 1893 depicting, so backtrack a little bit whenever i go to some of these museums like whether it's impressionism or uh it's a lot of western art and, which is amazing i love i mean there's like great things you can get out of it but then also there's a disconnect for me because my life stories have been different like things that look aesthetically pleasing to me is different the, the way like people live their lives are different and so when i was looking at this orientalist piece of art it was the first time where I was like, oh, this is somebody who's of color. It's like, it kind of looks like me. But the way they showed the image was more of showing people that look like me or their 
maybe they're lazy or they're submissive. And so that was interesting in the sense that here's an artist that's trying to show something about me and paint a picture of me. And it makes me want to believe in something about me that was never true to begin with. And we were all affected by like the images when I was telling you when I moved to the States and, you know, watching all these TV shows and America's is different. And then that's the same kind of the same thing that happened to me. It can happen to other folks when you look at a piece of work that shows a person of color in such a way that, that promotes certain stereotypes and, and biases. And so when a lot of my artwork too, is like, I like to be proximate to the stories, but also I want to reinterpret some of those narratives and also create a narrative that's new, that's different, that's also shows a different way of living life. And I know when you talk about spirituality, there's different ways to be, uh, to pursue a life that's spiritual and there's no right, right or wrong way. I think that, you know, with the art similar, well, there are certain things that can be very destructive, but if you have control sometimes of the narrative of those images to create a certain story, it can be dangerous. And I feel like some of the stories I want to share is showing more of the human side of things. And with that human side of things, you actually see more of the beauty of us being the same and being like wanting to have like love and happiness and success. Given how you described home, given how you describe your life and your interests, uh, why is Omaha home? I developed some really solid relationships. My family, like my two sisters are here. I have two nieces and two nephews. And I've actually done some pretty amazing work here in Omaha. Before I came on the show, I was kind of reflecting of all the things I've done here. And I was general counsel at Habitat for Humanity of Omaha, which is one of the largest affiliates in the nation. I've worked at 75 North, which is a community development organization that focuses on ways to improve a community. And I get to work and in my life, I think this is a one on, one, once in a lifetime experience to start working on a museum from the ground up and to be not only like locally, but regionally and nationally, internationally recognized as like a science museum. And it just is the world that's opened up for me. and. Um, provided me with a lot of professional opportunities and you know there's there are things that you know i can affordabilities over here i can actually go back to new york city and live like a king for a weekend and come back here again and i think that for um and there are a lot of cool things are that are happening in the last couple of years in omaha so um those are some of the things that pull me to in in omaha i mean so many diverse experiences, how has all of this, at this point in your life, culminated in who you are? How have you been shaped by all of these human experiences? You know, I think it starts from, when we, when we talk about opportunities of the people, like I've always been strong or surrounded by strong women, my, my mother and my two sisters, and a lot of the opportunities I've gotten here in this in this community has been through women and women of color. And um, so I think like the human aspect of things, of, of of being lucky enough to be exposed to the people that have been, that have surrounded me. I think also living in different parts of the world that um, forced me to see things in a different light, seeing war, you know, uh, when 
when Operation Desert Storm happened, we had folk army, American army troops that would come and we would serve them dinner and wash their clothes. And, you know, when we were like, all oh, right, yeah, we need to win the war. And then we got to, when I got evacuated and went to Pakistan, I met some Iraqis and, you know, I saw the other side of things and, you know, I got to experience different sides of stories. Just nothing is black and white. I mean, everything is gray. And I, I would like to see that gray in color. And I think that, that I want to color things um, in, in a way that um, enriches people's lives. And so, so, I mean, I was just fortunate enough to end up in New York City and end up being a lawyer and then meeting great people and using art to kind of deal with, you know, events or trauma or whatever you want to call it and to show the world and to that it is, there's beauty in here, you know, there, there's struggle and everything. And I think what I'm starting to realize is to enjoy the journey. It's not usually the destination that we're trying to get to. And sometimes when you get to the final destination, I don't know in your case, but in my case, it's like, is this it? And, and basically meaning that it's going through the life pains, it's going through the struggles, it's going through the love and it's going through the heartbreaks, it's going through all of that. And that's what makes life interesting. That's a journey. And that's, that's, that excites me. I think, you know, these people that have been in my life to the places I've been to, I mean, we talk about being in the moment. I want to be in the moment, but I want tomorrow. I don't want tomorrow just to be an added improvement from yesterday. I want tomorrow to be amazing. I want to live life. And I think that based on that mentality, that the energy you surround yourself with has attracted me to people and places that have been around my orbit. And then I'm just somebody who's very lucky to live, live a life that, you know, I manifested, you know, there's still things that I'm, trying to figure out but i have a piece of to practice my art form and i have pieces to practice my professional like being the vp of finance and operations admin side and so it's just it's this amazing ride i don't know where it's leading to but it's just kind of being appreciative and being grateful of things that i've been exposed to My guest today has been artist, attorney, and global citizen, Sean Elahi. Sean, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. This is great. I'm honored. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. 